Welcome to this recording from Revolve Church. This is Pastor Bill. If you're listening to this recording, we're glad that you've chosen to do so. We want to let you know that we had some audio problems with this recording. So the school has some new sound equipment, and so you'll notice, one, that the recording is slightly distorted, but the second thing is that we lost about a portion in the middle of the sermon because of a battery failure. And so I have re-recorded that portion of the sermon and inserted it into the sermon so that you can hear the whole thing in its entirety, but you will notice that the sound changes about partway through the sermon. Regardless, we hope that this sermon is a blessing to your heart and that God uses it to grow you and deepen you in your faith. Thanks for listening. And so we're going to continue from that place of worship. We're going to continue worship through song. We're going to continue now into the Word, looking at this, continuing this theme of Christology. We've been looking at Christology, the study of Christ, over the last few weeks. And we're going to be looking at this idea today of Jesus' favorite title for himself. Um, it's actually the most used title for Jesus in the New Testament, the Gospels, and that's the title of Son of Man. You probably think it would be Christ, but it's actually not Christ, it's Son of Man. Son of Man is used more than 80 times in the Gospels. I think over 60 times Jesus uses it to describe himself. Um, it's his preferred title. And many people, when they hear that title, Son of Man, they actually, right from the beginning, they have a misunderstanding of what it means. You know, because we think of Jesus as, well, he's son of God and he's son of man. And so, in other words, like Breton preached on a few weeks ago, this is that fancy thing that Breton was talking about, the hypostatic union. Jesus is 100% God, 100% man, which is 100% confusing. But that's actually not what it is. The son of man, son of God, yes, son of God. But son of man actually doesn't refer to his humanity necessarily. Son of Man refers to actually his kingly rule and reign in fulfillment of the scriptures from Gen, as you're going to see today, because we're going to cover from Genesis 1 to the, you know, from Genesis to the end of Revelation, it's this theme of dominion, of kingly rule, kingly reign, and the reclamation of that which was lost. And so in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. He says this is good. He creates the word of his mouth just by decree, like a king, right? He creates by decree, like a king, and it's created. And everything is as it should be. And he creates the first human beings. And we see this in Genesis chapter 1. This is what he says. It says in Genesis 1, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, all the creepers. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You know, two times in that passage we see the word dominion, dominion. See, as God rules the heavens and the earth, he says, let us make man in our likeness as a reflection. As I am king over everything, let us make mankind in our image as king over the world. You see, because God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, God is king of kings. 
And then he makes mankind as little kings over God's creation, caring for it, stewarding it, shepherding it, subduing it, having dominion over it. Dominion, if you were going to look it up, it means to have sovereignty, to have control, to rule, and to reign. See, this was mankind's original job. Mankind's original created order was to have dominion over all that God had created so that they are reflecting the reign of God as his image. In the ancient Near East, if I was an emperor, what I would do is I would go and build a statue of myself in all of the prevailing towns and villages around so that when people came into that village, even though I wasn't physically seated on a throne in that place, they would see the statue of me and they would say, that's the guy in charge. And so as Adam and Eve are spread, as they, give, as they have children and the humanity spreads around the globe, the idea is that God's dominion is spreading. That's why the first command given in the book of Genesis is to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, have children, because as you create more image bearers, the dominion of the king of kin, kings expands and expands and expands. But that's not what happens, as we know, as most of us know, maybe you don't know, in Genesis chapter 3, rather than being image bearers who accurately reflect the king of kings, what happens is that Adam, Adam and Eve embrace insubordination and rebellion, and they toss off this, this created order of going to the king of kings for wisdom so that they can then pass his wisdom on to the rest of the world, and they rebel against him. They seize the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for themselves, and they say, I will understand this. We don't need authority over us. We will do this all on our own. But in that moment, what happened is that Adam and Eve took the dominion that was given to them by God, and they gave that dominion to somebody else. Who did they give it to? They gave it to Satan. They gave it to the enemy. They give, essentially, the keys to the kingdom. They give the, the right to rule and to reign in dominion. They give that to God's enemy. And what happens is the world goes from bad to worse. In the next chapter of the scriptures, we see the first murder of Cain killing Abel. We see the world gets so bad that God looks at mankind and he says, every inclination of their heart is bent on evil. And he sends a global flood to try to wash it all away. But water can't wash away the sinful inclinations of a person's heart. And so then he, he continues, that, that didn't do it. And so what happened is they began to rebuild and they began to gather. And God told them to scatter, but they disobeyed him still. And they build this tower. They say, let us become like God. We'll dethrone God. We'll build this tower all the way up to the heavens. And then God will see that we are actually the ones in charge. And so God comes down to look at their tower, the Tower of Babel, and he scatters them. He scatters them. He scatters them by mixing up their language, and nations are spread all over the ancient world. And in commenting on that moment, this is what Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. He says, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, in other words, when God mixed all the nations up and he sent them around, when he divided up humankind, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the, and depending on what Bible translation you have, it's going to say one of three things. 
It's either going to say the sons of Israel, they will say that in the NIV, the KJV, and the NASB, or it might say the sons of God, as it does in the ESV and the Septuagint, or it might say the heavenly court in the NLT, which is the NLT translating or interpreting the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. And so there's some confusion here, but what happens is that God says, these are the nations, and now I'm distributing them to this, whatever this is. Well, let me explain this really quickly. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. In the original language, it most undoubtedly, confirmed by scholars all over the world, says the sons of God as the literal translation. And so the question is, what does sons of God mean? And that's what all of your Bible interpreters, that's why you have different translations. But in the Septuagint, which is the earliest, the oldest copy that we have of this, because the Masoretic text of the Hebrews is dated much later, in the Septuagint, they translate it as the angels of God. Okay? In other words, these are spiritual beings. Spiritual beings. And look what happens in this passage, is that God says, this is the dominion of the world has been given over to Satan and his minions. We see this in the book of Daniel. We see this with the prince of Persia. We see this throughout the scriptures that there's nations that have been distributed to God's enemies. And this is what I want you to realize. Don't get hung up on that. Get hung up on this. Dominion is lost by mankind and distributed to God's enemies. And then God says, but Israel... It's mine. Israel's my inheritance. Israel's the one that I'm choosing. You can have the other nations for now, but this is the one that I'm going to choose. See, dominion is lost. It's distributed to the enemies of God as they wait for dominion to be reclaimed. And that's what happens is that God chooses Israel. He says, all of these nations are subjected to the control of God's enemies, but I'm choosing this one nation, Israel. This is my inheritance. And you say, well, that's a smart choice, God. Why did you choose Israel? And this is what we read in Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord of your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you, that he chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The idea here is this, that God says, I'm going to reclaim dominion over all of humanity, and the people I'm going to do it through are going to be the smallest, the weakest, the most, the greatest underdog of a nation that you could imagine, and that's the one that I'm going to use. Because God always chooses the weak to shame the strong. You realize Israel's natural history is a history of tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. You know, we look at the Holocaust, and we realize in the Holocaust, there was the systemic extermination of two-thirds of the world's population of Jews. But then realize this. The Holocaust, as we think of it in World War II, was not the, far, the first Holocaust. 
the Israelites are people whose entire history is built upon Holocaust after Holocaust, tragedy after tragedy, slaughter after slaughter, beginning in Egypt and continuing until the modern day. That God placed Israel in this small little section of land in the Middle East between the two major powers of Africa and Asia, and throughout history, the 3,000 years of, of Israelite history, it was just Israel going back and forth like a ping-pong ball. Do you realize that over 3,000 years of Israelite history, they, there's only about 20 to 40 years of peace in Israel? Think about that. In the 3,000 years of Israelite history, only a few decades of them are actually peace. But the golden years of Israel were not today. The golden years of Israel were under a king, a small shepherd boy who became king. And his name was what? David. Now, David was a unique king, not just because he killed giants, but he did so many amazing things. He led the nation in killing giants. He led the nation in conquering Jerusalem. He led the nation in bringing the tabernacle into the holy city. He led the nation by defeating the enemies. Under David, this tiny little nation became the main power of the region. God extended the boundaries and the borders of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. See, David was a great king. He wasn't just a great king. He was a warrior. He was a great poet. He was a great musician, a great administrator, a charismatic leader. He was a good king, and the nation was happy under his reign. And God made him a promise. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made him a promise that his monarchy would turn into a dynasty and that his family's dominion would continue and continue and continue. But as soon as David died, it was business as normal. Things started to crumble and return to the way they were. Warfare, politics, backstabbing, destruction at the hands of one nation after another. But the Jewish people, the Israelites, had a dream and they kept going back to that promise, that covenant that God had made. They longed for the day when a king like David would come and he would, re he would reign and he would have true dominion. He would remove the Babylonians. He would remove the Assyrians. He would remove the Persians. He would remove the Romans. And in that king they were waiting for was their anointed one. Or as we know it, the Christ. Or in the Hebrew, the Messiah. The one who would have the power to rule and to reign with the dominion that God had given him. Now, the promises for this ruler are throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, and one such promise, one such prophecy, is found in the book of Daniel. Now, who is Daniel? Daniel is the main character in a little prophetic book called Daniel. Daniel was a Jewish teen when he was taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar II of Babylon, and he wound up serving that king and all of his successors all of the way until the Persian conqueror Cyrus came onto the scene. And the amazing thing is he did all of this while remaining true and faithful to his God. So in Daniel chapter 7, we read this. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as, they, as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote down the dream and he told the sum of the matter. 
So Daniel received this vision during the first year of Belshazzar around 552 BC when the Babylonians still ruled the ancient world. And Daniel had this dream, and I'm not going to recount the whole dream now for the sake of time, but in this dream it's about four great beasts and God's heavenly court, that same heavenly court that we referenced earlier in Deuteronomy 32. Then the beasts are represent these four mighty kings or these four mighty kingdoms who seek to conquer, to have dominion, and to destroy. But despite all this, God has a plan and he has a promise to remain faithful and to reclaim dominion. That's what this is all about, reclaiming dominion. And so look at Daniel 7, beginning in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Ancient of Days meaning God the Father. His clothing was white as snow. In other words, he's holy. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. He's wise with age. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. He's on this flaming chariot throne. He's a powerful warrior. And there's a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. This is a terrifying scene. And there's thousands and thousands who are serving him and 10,000 times 10,000 standing before him. This is a king who's worthy to be served. And they're there in the court sitting in judgment and the books are opened. This is the great account at the end. Verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, that's one of the beasts. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. The dominion was stripped from them. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and all nations and all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." So you have this son of man figure, and he appears to have both human and divine traits. Son of man alone just sounds like a person, but look at this person. He's riding on the clouds, clearly divine. He's presented before the Ancient of Days and lives, clearly divine. He's given a reward from the Ancient of Days. What is the reward? Dominion. Now you say, okay, well, demons have dominion. You just said that a little bit ago. Yes, but look at his dominion. It is a dominion over all people, over all nations, over all languages. It is everlasting. It shall not pass away. It shall not be destroyed. So this son of man is a divine king who will rule and rule and rule. This is complete and utter dominion, the like which has never been realized. Not in Adam, not in David, nobody This is the one that we've been waiting for, this son of man in Daniel 7, described poetically elsewhere in Psalm 72, 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So the Jews viewed this as a continuation of that promise to David, to Abraham, to bless the world, to Adam, to have dominion. And then Jesus comes onto the scene. Now, Jesus' favorite title for himself was Son of Man. 
And when the people would hear that title, they would need to decide what he was saying. Was he using it like Ezekiel, who used to say that God would say to him, Son of man, stand on your feet. That's like a human. Or did he mean something else? Did he mean it like Daniel in this divine king way? Now, technically, we know that Jesus meant it in both ways, like Breton talked a few weeks back about Jesus being fully God and fully man. It takes no faith to view Jesus as a son of man, the way that I am a son of man. But to think that he's the son of man as described in Daniel, that's a bold claim. Some Jews knew exactly what Jesus was getting at. Because when you look at the various passages in the New Testament, it's amazing when you track this out and see the response. For example, Matthew 9, they bring Jesus a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus sees their faith, he says to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes, they're there in the room, and they say to themselves, this man is blaspheming. They haven't even said it out loud. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he says to them, why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk? Now catch this, what he says in verse 6. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, in other words, dominion on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. You have to wonder if in that moment, if the paralytic even needed faith, or if he had to obey the command to get up and go because Jesus had dominion. When Jesus is healing on the Sabbath, when his disciples are picking grains of wheat on the Sabbath and the Pharisees come to Jesus and they criticize him, Jesus' response to them is, the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. The Son of Man has dominion over the Sabbath. The Son of Man has dominion over the law. When he was on trial before his crucifixion in Matthew chapter 26, the high priest comes to him and he says to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the throne, seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's clearly referencing Daniel 7 making this claim about himself. And that it is then that the high priest tears his robes and said he has uttered blasphemy and they condemn him to death. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, he's giving his account before the council, defending himself. And then he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And it's at that point that they rush out and they stone him to death, killing him for blasphemy. And as I've been thinking about this passage and this, this theme of Son of Man, I keep recounting this, this process of exec uh, from execution to exaltation throughout the scriptures. And it begins early on that we see, for example, Joseph is condemned to, to prison, but then God exalts him to the second in command. And then we see that Moses is exiled and condemned, but then God exalts him. And we see that David is condemned to death by Saul, but then God exalts him. We even see Mordecai is condemned to death, but then God exalts him to be the right hand of the king of kings, just like Jesus is going to be executed and then exalted to the right hand of the ancient of days. This theme continuing, continuing. 
Just look at some of these passages. This is the this is in the framework, the framework of the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 1, this is what Paul says beginning in verse 20. He's praying that that the God's people in Ephesus would know the power of God. And he says that power that God the Father worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and he seated him. See, we think of the resurrection as, oh, he came back to life. That's only part of it. That's the small part of it. Lazarus came back to life. Look what happens more than that. He raised him from the dead and then God seats him at the right hand of power in the heavenly places, far above all rule and all authority and all power and dominion. This is referring to those spiritual beings. This is what Paul says when he's talking about spiritual beings in Ephesians 6. We don't war against flesh and blood. We war against authority and rule and power and dominion. And Jesus is the name above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one that is to come. And then Paul continues to say, not only that, but Jesus is the head of the church and you are his body. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. And that means that as part of the church, the body of Christ, all things aren't just in subjection to Christ. They are in subjection to Christ's body, the church, that we have dominion over them and they have no hold over us. In Philippians 2, we read, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of sinful men. But by being found in human form, he humbled himself, though he's the son of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, a criminal's death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that name, that title of the Son of Man, so that at the name of Jesus, the King of Kings, every knee should bow. Not just every knee on earth, but every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. And so what's our response? What's your response to any conquering king? You know, we love stories where the the, the king tries to come in and they try to beat everybody up, but there's like that band, that ragtag militia that, you know, that's like the American in us, like woo-woo, like eagle. You know, that's... We want to see like that militia throw off the evil empire who's trying to attack... But what if the conquering king isn't an evil warlord? What if the conquering king is a king who's liberating with love? And that conquering king comes, and he comes like the return of the king seen in Lord of the Rings. He's coming at the gates of Mordor, and he's demanding that it would be torn down. Do you submit to that king and say, I can't believe I got to bend a knee. This is ridiculous. Or do you run out overjoyed? You run out filled with joy because you've been liberated from the clutches of an evil empire, that your world has been under the dominion of demonic evil beings until Jesus came and bound the strong man so we could plunder his house, until he cut Goliath's head off so that we could render the Philistines powerless. This is what Jesus has done. And so what is our response? We bend the knee in worshipful adoration, and then we are fruitful and multiply. 
We spread his fame. We spread his reign to the ends of the earth. We herald the imminent return of our king. We share his goodness in every dark place. We announce to the powers at be that their day is coming because he will return riding on the clouds, dressed in white robes, with eyes of fire, an army at his back, and a sword in his mouth, and he will return to enforce his reign. And then it will be too late. The Son of Man and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, and it will not end. Father God, you have a wonderful scripture that you've given us that shows us truth that is beyond comprehension and remarkable. Father, I pray for those who are in the room today who have never bent the knee in loving worship, surrender to you. Lord, I don't know why, but you do. I pray that even right now, your gaze, the gaze that you looked at Peter, that gaze that can melt a heart of stone in a moment, I pray that that gaze would melt hearts today. I pray that during this final bridge, this final song, I pray that this would be the time when we bend the knee in worshipful adoration because you are great and you are worthy of all worship. Would you stand and worship the King? Lord, we confess that we pour out our praise to so many lesser places. We confess that even though we may not verbally praise things, we give these things rule and dominion in our lives because we live in fear. We live in fear of the future, fear of people. We live in fear of so many things, God. And when we do that, we are giving them dominion in our lives. But now we want to cast that all aside and we want to know we want to know in our hearts that you are the son of man, that you have dominion, that you have reign. God, I pray for hearts that, are, that are, are hard today and that they don't want Jesus seated on the throne in their heart. I pray that you would woo them to yourself. Your kindness leads us to repentance. May today be the day that we worship the Son of Man truly and fully, maybe for the first time.